0: Reflections on the Bible, Creation, Fall, and Sacrifice, by Gil Bailey, narrated by Gil Bailey, and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, part one. Well, as we turn to Genesis, I want to turn back before going forward and connect a little bit with Virginia Woolf's The Waves, which we just discussed in the sessions before this. And I want to start with a couple of things, one from Bernard, who is the novelist, who's really the voice of Virginia Woolf, I think, in that novel. And Bernard says, I have made up thousands of stories, I have filled innumerable notebooks with phrases to be used when I have found the true story, the one story to which all the phrases refer, but I have never yet found that story. and of course the the bible presents itself as that story it says this is the real story this is the real story of humanity if you want to know what's happening to the human race this is the story this is the anthology of stories which underneath which there is what modern Literary theorists call the meta-narrative the great story, or what we might, in biblical idiom, call salvation history—the real story of the human race. And Gerard, you know, refers to the Bible as an anthropological encyclopedia, uh, but one that doesn't just have entries here and there, but one that has a progressive development. And I'm afraid modern biblical scholarship has, for the most part, followed in the steps of Bernard in Virginia Woolf's novel, which is to say that much of modern biblical scholarship has been doing interesting and, I think, even helpful work in analyzing the historical, uh, the historicity of the text and how they came into being and and uh, the the politics and theology of the construction and editing and redacting of the text and so on, which is very helpful, and 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 the material that's made available by that enterprises is, is valuable. On the other hand, there are very few modern scholars who have paid attention to the to whether or not there is underneath all of this mountain of detail a central story, and very few modern scholars would would uh, hazard a guess or uh, risk their professional reputation by saying either, A, that this is the story of humanity, that would be really out of the question, or B, there is a central theme to this story. Very few people have picked up on that. And in the great spirit of fools rush in where angels fear to tread, I shouldn't say that because... Uh, though Gerard is not a biblical scholar, uh, he, he he's he's pretty well informed in that area, but uh, he has insisted that there is, in fact, a central story, a, a drama going on. And, by the way, my friend Jim Williams, who will be here in a couple of weeks, who is, in fact, a biblical scholar of some note, uh, has written a book saying precisely that. And so, we'll, if you want to question him on that, you can when he gets here. So, there is a... There, there is, after all, what Bernard was looking for. Or at least that's, from the biblical point of view, there, was, there is something uh, at the heart of this huge mountain of literature which is what Bernard was looking for, namely the true story, the one story. And it's, by the way, it's an anthology. You know the, the word florilegia is just a synonym for anthology. It's a collection of stories that make, that, that constitute one single story ultimately. We're going to be looking at the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, but only at a couple of little aspects of it. very brief look at Genesis. Genesis is quite a big book, and we're not going to be dealing with it uh, in any extensive detail at all. I'm just going to look at the the creation story, the fall story, and the Abraham and Isaac story, and then bring in a few other things that are uh, related. And it's always risky to take single strands out of the biblical tapestry or, to use another metaphor, to take uh, isolated strata out of the biblical uh, ore or mine because it's one m- might miss the overall story. But if there is an overall story, and I think there is, it's discernible if we know how to look for it in each facet of the, uh, of the biblical narrative. So I remember something Jung once said about dreams. He said, "If in any one dream, you should be able to see the whole dreamer's life. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I think uh, there's something that parallels that in the biblical tradition. In any one biblical pericope of any scope, one ought to be able to see the underlying issue that the biblical te- text generally are wrestling with. And I think that's very much so in the in the... Passages that we're going to be studying, but I would go back for a second to su- another a- another quotation from Virginia Woolf's novel before going forward, and that is from Lewis. Something Lewis says, and Lewis is the T. S. Eliot figure, as you know, in that novel. And Lewis is trying his best, like the figure of that Eliot describes in the, his poem, "The Portrait of the Lady." He's trying his best not to get caught up in the in the sociodrama that other people in the novel are caught up in. And he's trying to pay attention to something that's deeper than that. And so he sits in a restaurant by himself, alone at his table, with his book propped up against a a bottle of Worcester sauce, trying to focus and not let the sociodrama distract him. And he says, he's reading poetry, and he says as he's reading it to all those others who are present in his mind, which is everybody. He says, you, all of you, ignore it, namely this poetry. What the dead poet said you have forgotten, and I cannot translate it to you so that its binding power ropes you in and makes it clear to you that you are aimless and the rhythm is cheap and worthless. And so remove the degradation which, if you are unaware of your aimlessness, pervades you, making you senile even while you are young. To translate that poem so that it is easily read is to be my endeavor. And I think that really does capture the spirit of Eliot, and Virginia Woolf knew Eliot pretty well, and I think she captured his his vocation in those lines. I'll just mention a couple of things. I talked about him when we were talking about the self and its sources, but he says the rhythm is cheap for, in this, in Virginia Woolf's novel, rhythm is the, is the metaphor for a kind of, uh, for a kind of uh, pulsating, rhythmic, uh, enticing, intoxicating play of words or images which leaves one with the feeling that real meaning is being... Experienced, but when all is said and done, it's just a lot of waves rippling on the surface of things, and that underneath it nothing fundamental has been touched and I think in this in in this quotation here it plays the same thing the Eliot, who wants to translate the the great poem, says that it's not the the rhythm is intoxicating. I should just say this in passing there's a whole there's a whole theme to the in this regard in Eliot's poetry which has to do with the intoxication of the muses or the music. In Murder in the Cathedral, uh, one of the priests says, "Well, how can we ever figure out what's going on? We'll never be able to figure out what's going on until until the grinders cease and the daughters of music are laid low. And that's so Eliot-esque, you know. As long as we have all these things running through our heads, these little patterns of thought and reflection uh, that are so much a part of our age, we'll never be able to see what's really happening. And so until the grinders cease and the daughters of music are laid low, uh, we'll never be able to see clearly. Well, in a way, strangely enough, Virginia Woolf has picked up on that in this novel. Every time she speaks of rhythm, I think she's referring to something very much like that. To the same point, really, is what happens later in that same passage when lewis says this aimlessness that pervades you is making you senile even while you are young and this senility that seems to be rejuvenation is an is another theme that's very important to eliot's work so that we so that the very people who are who who feel that they are that they are onto the latest thing or ahead of their time or you know this kind of thinking the very th- people who regard themselves as avant-garde uh, are the people who are senile in a deeper sense so eliot who eliot parentheses lewis who sees all that is determined to translate the poem and of course for him the poem i, I think for for eliot and very likely for lewis and Wolfe's novel, the poem is not just the poem. We know, for instance, that Eliot <coughs> tried, for example, in his plays to translate the Greek tragedies. And he tried in his poetry, the great poetry, the poetry of The Wasteland and of uh, the Four Quartets, he tried, to, he tried to do for his age what Dante had done for his. And what, what is that? Dante, what Dante did for his is he brought the whole thing into a contemporary idiom and expressed it for his time, and so when Eliot says, "Eliot, Prince, Lewis says he's trying to translate the poem," the poem really is the whole tradition, at the center of which is the Bible, and that's why I invoke this image here. So, any time we turn to the Bible, we should do it in that in that spirit, that there is a central story here, and, and it's and it's underneath and in and infused in all of the particular stories of which there are thousands in the biblical text. If we turn to the, to the story in Genesis, we see, first of all, from the scholarly point of view, there are several authors. They're usually designated as the Yahwist, the priestly author, and the Elohist. And this morning I'll only talk about the priestly and the Yahwist, although I'm not even going to talk about them much because I'm not concerned about that aspect of the interpretation. I'd rather take this text as it exists, but it's not. There's a certain interest, I think, in the fact that you have two authors in the first, in the first uh, four books of the Bible. Well, all the way through the the Genesis, but there are two authors in the stories we're going to look at today, namely the Yahwist and the Priestly author. And I think we should. There's an interesting point to be made, and that is that they are writing at two strikingly different times in Israel's history. The Yahwist is writing in the tenth century, at the time of say Saul, David, Solomon, the high point of Israel. Israel when it's, you know, just beginning to uh, experience its historical significance and uh, preeminence, and it's full of promise, and it's uh, it, it's uh, it has nothing but the best to look forward to. And the priestly author is writing from the sixth century just before or perhaps just after the destruction of Jerusalem, the exile, at a time after the prophets had written, at a time when it was perfectly clear that uh, Israel's historical experience had been uh, somewhat of a catastrophe. So you have an author writing at a time where, where there's nothing but promise and an author writing at a time when things look terrible. And you would expect that the author writing at the time when there's nothing but promise would be all upbeat and the author who's writing at the time when things are terrible would would be very uh, sober it's exactly the opposite it's always the opposite in the biblical text uh, the the uh, the time to remind people that God is still with us is the low time and the time to warn us of the problems is when we 're at the top of the thing and the bible is is on to that you see so here you, I think it's interesting that the first Chapter 1 of Genesis and a little bit of chapter 2 is written by the priestly author, and it's full of reassurance. And chapter 2 and 3 and 4 is written by the Yahwist, and it's full of warning. It's about the fall. So that in itself is worth noting. So I'm just going to talk, today I just want to talk about the creation fall, uh, expulsion from the garden, and Cain and Abel. I'm in the embarrassing situation, which I often hear of retelling you a story that you know so well that you don't need me to retell it, but just to sort of reinvoke it. The Bible begins, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was a formless void. There was darkness over the deep, and God's Spirit hovered over the water. God said, Let there be light. That was the first day, and so on. All through here. We know this is the priestly account because this is done by day. The first day, the second day, all the way down to the seventh, which, of course, is the day of rest. So you know that the, that those most concerned with the Sabbath are writing this story. But there's something more profound to it as well, and I'll speak of that in a minute. But one of the profundities, of course, is that God does all this by word. The dabar in Hebrew. God speaks and brings the world into into being God calls to the world uh, the world is a vast vocation uh, it is God's call that brings life and existence and being and consciousness and finally love into being, into reality it's the call of God this is a very mystical text in that regard Uh it is God's call to matter that gives matter uh, form and meaning. It's a very profound meditation on what is. So God said and God continues to say, and, the, and what God says comes to be, so what comes to be becomes part of what God says. The record of God, what God says, as uh, some people pointed out, Nature is the first of God's books. What is, is a... Uh, one can see in the world evidence of the call in the natural world. So, God said, let there be light. Let, there be, let the land and water separate. That was the second day. God said, let the earth produce vegetation. God saw that it was good now here's the other very important refrain through all of this. Remember this is the priestly author writing in the 6th century which was the, which was the dark age. God said, saw it and it was good. God saw it and it was good over and over again. God saw it and it was good. God created a good world. This is a good world. You see, and the priestly author is reassuring his people. If there's something wrong with this world it's our fault, not God's fault. The world itself, it's not a, a trap-door universe. We, there's nothing tricky about this world. It's perfectly good. God's creation is good. Separating the day and night, and God saw it was good on the fourth day. Uh, creating the creatures on the fifth day, and, and uh, God saw that it was good. And then on the sixth day, quote, God created man in the image of himself, in the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. There are two creation stories, as you know. Chapter two is another creation story. It's and that's the Yahwist version. So there are two stories in the Bible. They just put them together instead of trying to, instead of trying to tell, melt them down and tell one. They just put them both together. It's typical of many things in the biblical text. But here, it's very interesting that God created. Uh, Male and female he created them. There is a symmetry to the male and female relationship in the book of Genesis. The symmetry is broken by sin. And I'll talk about that when we get to chapter 2. But you get it in that passage. Male and female he created them. I say symmetry rather than equality because equality is a very clumsy idea. And... uh, I think it just gets in the way. It's a modern idea that has that's caused us a lot of problems. We don't need to throw it back on the Bible. But symmetry is there. And then a passage which has raised the hackles of many. God blessed them saying, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. God saw that he had made, God saw all that he had made, and indeed it was very good. That was the sixth day and on the seventh day God rested. Now, this idea be fruitful, multiply and subdue the earth many regard it as an imperialistic conspiracy to overthrow the natural world or something. It's not that at all. It's simply the facts. simply the facts. We are the creature that we are the creatures who are uh, in whose hands this planet the fate of this planet is gradually being placed and Instead of pretending that that's not so, we should take responsibility and try to live up to the commission that we're given in Genesis. But we shouldn't ask... To, you have to understand also, these stories are written for some, a, a certain purpose. This story is not written in order to tell us how to, whether or not we should recycle or or uh, you know clear-cut or something like that. This story is written to tell us about the human dilemma. So what do we notice... So far in this first creation story, the important things to notice, I think, are that the world is brought into being by the word. If you go to primitive mythology, many, most uh, creation stories, cosmogonies, in, in uh, the primitive world or the pagan world, you get, and I'm going to refer to one in passing later on, a summation by Hesiod. But you get these stories of the creation of the world coming into being because of these, you know, these uh, violent clashes between forces, or the, the the destruction of the monster and the dismembering of the monster, and all of that kind of stuff—that's very, very typical of creation stories uh, in, in in other cultures. So you get a quite a striking, uh, a unique version of creation here in this story. It's very quiet, and it's very affirming of what is. It's very peaceful. So that's important, and it's done by the Word, the Word of God. And secondly, and equally important in my view, is that it's done one day at a time. That is to say, time, chronological time, is one of the raw materials for God's self-revelation to the world. Creation, biblical creation, is simply God's self-revelation to the world. That's why we can say nature is God's first book. So biblical creation is God's self-revelation to the world, and the Bible says it happens in time, gradually, chronologically. And this is quite... This is in, in, in keeping, it's really of a piece with the, the idea of the paraclete in John's Gospel, that this process continues through history... Gradually, as we are capable of appreciating its significance and meaning and living up to its, its mandate and so on and so forth. So this is how creation, or to put it in another biblical idiom, salvation history, the redemption of the world, this is how it takes place gradually over time. And thirdly, that human relationships are important. This becomes quite clear in, in the second creation story when we discover that Adam needs a helpmate and the search is on for a helpmate. Uh, but even in this story, male and female, he created them. Human relations are important uh, in this process. And perhaps most importantly of all, human beings are made in the image of God. Again, that is a tremendously deep religious meditation. It's so familiar to us that we don't, we don't notice. But if we had never heard of that, and some, you know, some John of the Cross type figure had uh, come out of his hermitage 20 years after he went in and said to us, we are made in the image of God, we would. It might sink in what that means. I think what it means is that we humans are meant to be the evidence of God. I remember something. I think it was this French, this Bishop of Paris. He may is he still there? Archbishop of Paris. There was. I think it was an Archbishop of Paris. But it's so long ago since I read this. But he said, "What does somebody said What does it mean to live?" A faithful life. And he said something like this. He said it means that it means that your life would be absurd if there is no God. You live in such a way that your life is absurd if there is no God. And secondly, it means that at the end of your life, there is more proof that there is a God than there was before you were born. Now, to me, that is of a piece with this idea that we're made in God's image. That there's that that we are in we're called to live like god lives we're called to be like god is to treat each other and the world around us the way god does okay then we get the second creation story which is the Yahweh story and in this one it's a little more quote unquote primitive the Yahweh is is an is a kind of homer of the israelite tradition uh, and it's a little primitive in a certain way, but in another way, not. It's, it's a little... Has a, it's not as quite, quite as smooth and meditated as the priestly account. So in this one, God takes dust from the earth and breathes into it and makes this creature like a little potter, you see, and fashions man and then places him in the garden and... Uh, and puts a tree in the middle of the garden. And of the tree, it says, he says to man, you may indeed eat of all the trees in the garden. Nevertheless, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you are not to eat. For on the day you eat of it, you shall most surely die. Let me go on to the helpmate and then come back to that. The search is on for the helpmate of Adam, and the creatures are, other creatures are brought into the picture, but none of them work. And so finally, as you know, his rib he's taken out of Adam and from that is fashioned the woman. And it says, Adam says, uh, Adam sees the woman, Eve, and says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And again, you have the symmetry, a pretty remarkable symmetry in the creation story, male and female symmetry. And it's underscored, the significance of it is really, I think, underscored in the passage following which says, Now both of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they felt no shame in front of each other. That's a remarkable commentary, poetic commentary, on what paradise is like, the way it's supposed to be. Now what because what nakedness without shame means, it has it's not it has nothing to do with sexual uh innuendos. Nakedness without shame, I think at a deeper level, simply means No subterfuge, no appearance-reality dichotomy. Everything is simply there. The truth is simply there. Relationships are what they are. We are what we are to each other. There's no little gaminess going on anywhere. And so that's another picture of what it's like in, in paradise, which is to say the way we should be. Okay, let me go back to the tree just for a second. First of all, to take the idea of this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The biblical text is is uh, not strikingly, and I would even say stridently, not Gnostic, not uh, philosophical. So that when it talks about the knowledge of good and evil, it is not talking about something that happens in the mind. If the text, for example, said, if you eat of that, that is the tree... Of the, the, that is the tree of the knowledge of suffering. Then we would pick up on it a little bit. we say, oh yeah, right, suffering. That's not just something you... You don't know about suffering because you read about it in a book, right? You don't know about suffering because you, you have this knowledge or this, this information about suffering, but because you've suffered. And I think we have to understand this is the way the Bible talks. So when it says that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil it doesn't mean you're going to come away with concepts. It means you're going to be thrown right into it. It means that, you, that suddenly you're going to have to live in a world where, where constant discernment is required. That good and evil will be so intertwined that you will not be able to tell the difference. And you will be filled with good intentions that will, that will turn out to hurt others and, and cause you nothing but heartache. And you will sometimes have this meanness in you that will create saints in the world. And and you're never gonna be able to sort it out very well, but you're gonna be hounded by it your whole life. You wanna you see that I think we have to see that's the knowledge of good and evil. But of course, the biblical God is I remember so well Joseph Campbell, who was not who was not overly fond of the biblical God as you remember but he would uh, he would refer to this God as the hoarder of consciousness the hoarder of consciousness namely he didn't want these human beings to and he got that from Jung I have to say Jung had a little of that too Um, so why is this one tree set off in the garden we have to ask ourselves well I'm going to tell you why (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because this this storyteller is a storyteller and he has to get his story going. And he's trying to tell a story about what's wrong with us. He's not trying to tell a story about... I think the priestly account in chapter 1 is a story about God. God creates by calling us out. He creates by beckoning, by calling out the name. He finds that it is good and so on and so forth. It's a very... That tells us something about God, the God in whose image we are made. But, the, but when the Yahweh takes over, he's trying to tell us what's wrong with us. And he has to have, there's a, the story has to have a certain armature about it in order to reflect on the problem. So we should regard, I think, things like the tree and the serpent as the narrative armature that the, that the narrator has to employ in order to get at the story he's trying to tell. So we should give that that's that's where biblical scholarship modern biblical scholarship comes in I think it says look wait a minute we're talking about a human being in the 10th century trying to tell his people what's wrong with them so cut it out <laughs> realize what's going on here so he has to start with something now you notice that this tree that he that the is forbidden there we're in we're in Eden. You have to understand where there's nothing but abundance, super abundance in in, in Eden. There's nothing that they want. Everything is there, in greater abundance than they could ever hope for. And there's this one little tree that says, "Don't eat from that." So this is an absolutely ideal case. Yeah, the, the ideal case is you're forbidden this one thing, which impinges upon you, n- not at all. It in no way impinges on your freedom. You are, you, are not, you, have, uh, you are not missing anything by not eating of that tree. It's simply a test case. If I say, don't eat the tree, this is God's, you could say, I mean, I'm being playful here, but you could say God says, well, look, if they're made in my image, we, 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 I made them in my image, now we better test it and see if they can do it. We're, if they're made in my image, I should be able to say, well, just don't eat that tree. And they will say, well, God said that, so let's not eat that tree. So, And that's pretty much what happens, by the way, because the other armature of the story is the serpent, because they have no desire for the tree until the serpent comes along. So what is the... Yahweh's trying to tell us about what's wrong with us. Well, he the, the first key to it is the prohibition. And so I want to before going to what happens next, go back a little further than the Virginia Woolf series, back to what we did last fall, and quote from Rousseau. Rousseau had another idea about origin, you know. His idea was that we are so perfectly good that we've fallen into civilization. Civilization is the problem. Uh, And that if we were back in nature, there's no such thing, of course, as original sin. So if we were back in nature, we would just be wonderful. Wonderful. Uh, loving, perfectly good people. By the way, I just saw a review of a book that's just come out about a wolf, about a man raised by wolves, which is, you know, he's far superior to all these terribly civilized people. Who, are... so that you know, the Rousseau-esque Rus- uh, myth is uh, is one that dies hard. Anyway, Rousseau said of his own childhood. Here's what Rousseau said: My desires were so rarely excited and so rarely thwarted that it never came into my head to have any. And if you apply that to the Genesis story, you, you see that the always knows what the problem is. And he has to set up something that will reveal the problem. And until he sets it up, he's in the position of Rousseau here. My desires were so rarely excited and so rarely thwarted that it never came into my head to have any. The author of this story in Genesis knows that we have them and that's our problem and knows there's something completely screwy about these desires. They're not spontaneous desires in the Freudian sense. There's something really screwy about them. And so he has to create the apparatus for invoking them and Rousseau had it exactly right. They have to be excited and thwarted. And so the author of this story begins by thwarting them, saying there's a tree, you can't eat of that. Now all he has to do is excite them. They're not ex- the desire for that tree is not excited by the prohibition. By the way, if the desire later in the more f- once we're fallen, desire can be excited simply by the prohibition, and this is what Paul talks about when he says the law came, sin took advantage of the law uh, to cause me to sin the more. You see, the law itself is scandalous because it says you can't do that. The law itself can become a scandal. But in this situation, it's not. It has to be thwarted and then excited, and the serpent comes along to excite it. And then we have the problem. But, But even Rousseau sees that. The next line in Rousseau is, I could swear indeed that until I was put under a master, I did not so much as know what it was to want my own way. That is really incredible. Well, here the Creator says to Adam and Eve, you may not eat of that tree. And so the serpent comes along and provides the the, uh, incentive to do so. The Bible says the serpent was the most subtle of all wild beasts that Yahweh God had made. And it came and asked the woman, did God really say you're not to eat from any of the trees in the garden? And this is very subtle by the way. It reminds me of Iago in Shakespeare's Othello. And I would if I were editing the Bible, I would make the word really in italics. Did he really? You see how this gets things going? It's all you need. That's Iago knows that so well. It's all you need. Because it in, it insinuates the one thing. By the way, you know what the word, the, ins, the word insinuates comes from the word for snake, for serpent. It insinuates something into the mind of the hearer, and that is, what does it insinuate? First of all, you have to understand that the, that the God of the biblical world is a God who is loving, generous, giving, kind, merciful, etc. In other words, a trustworthy God. God can be trusted. When God creates, it is good. Okay, So, when God says, don't eat of that, that tree, it's just going to cause you misery. Adam and Eve have no problem. Or at least, we don't have evidence of any problem. It's only when the serpent comes along and says, did he really? Say that with eyebrows arched, you know. Oh, wonder what that means. That must mean that he's got something up his sleeve. That must mean that this really is a trapdoor universe and that there is one set for you somewhere and that you're not let in on the whole thing and that you better start uh, looking out for yourself and that you better start looking at God, looking to God as a rival. You better start trying to outwit God cuz he's trying to outwit you. So it's a question of trust. Did he really I always of course invoke Girard's profound understanding of the human predicament, but I, it's not an imposition on this text because it's texts like this that taught him it's text like this that led him to, to, uh, to his understandings. There is no spontaneous desire for this tree, for the fruit of this tree. It is mediated desire. Precisely the fall, according to the Bible, is mediated desire, or what Girard calls mimetic desire. There is no spontaneous desire in Eve or Adam for the fruit of that tree. It has to be evoked. And what's it evoked by? The desire uh, manifested by the serpent for that fruit. In other words, the the serpent simply calls Eve's attention to the fruit of that tree and uh, alerts her to its desirability. Then the serpent said to the woman, God knows, in fact, that on the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God's knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good to eat and pleasing to the eye and that it was desirable for the knowledge it would give. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. The woman saw that it was good to eat, pleasing to the eye and desirable. She didn't see that until the mimetic provocation presented itself. And she ate it. And she gave some to her husband who ate it. And their eyes were indeed opened, just as the serpent said. And they realized that they were naked. And they were ashamed. So they sewed fig leaves on. You see, this is the first fall. is to suddenly, it means... the. The game has begun. The terrible, deadly game has begun. Of appearance and reality. The serpent had said to them, "Look, this is a tricky universe. It's not a trusting universe. You can't. It's a jungle out there. <laughs> you can't trust even the God who gave you this this uh, this." Uh, abundance you can't trust you have to assert yourself you have to you have to look out for number 1 you have to make sure you're getting your share you see you have to make sure you're getting your rights the question about whether adam and eve would would have remained innocent innocent had they not eaten the fruit is one of the questions, and there are many like that, that I think are just not part of this story. In other words, the story is not written about people in the garden. It's written about people outside of it as a way of trying to describe the process by which uh, they have come to live their lives in this fallen way. And so it's asking, I think, too much of the story to to uh, want to know what it would have been had this not happened. You know what I mean? I think most of all we have to see it as a diagnostic of the human predicament. We should ask the story, is it telling us what it purports to be telling us, namely why we are fallen and unhappy creatures? And I think it is. You see, what the story says is the problem is rivalry with God, self-assertion, and mimetic desire. You see, I don't think it's a question of why would God ever want to... Was God just playing games by putting the tree, forbidding the tree? Well, God didn't do that. The storyteller did that. You know what I mean? This is a story. (laughs) Kierkegaard says resentment is the constituent principle of the modern age. And the question is, is this Genesis story modern? I think it's very modern. But there's a little aspect of it we don't get it comes out if you italicize the serpent's word really did he really you see and and you get the whole problem of uh the rivalry with god he's up to something you better be alert and just to talk about that for a second I want to go back to Virginia Woolf. Bernard there said, We resent teachers. Let a man get up and say, Behold, this is the truth, and instantly I perceive a sandy cat filching a piece of fish in the background. Look, you have forgotten the cat, I say. And this has to do with Paul's notion that when the law came, it multiplied the opportunities for sinning. The very fact that somebody says, Here's the truth or don't do this, or go this direction. The very fact that that is proposed is scandalous and causes somebody to say, not on your life. (laughs) When the serpent says, oh, no, 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 he's lying to you. God's lying to you. Really, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like gods, and I would say maybe there's some truth to that, because the serpent is essentially saying, if you accept the world as as I construct it, namely, God's trying to. Tri- this is a tricky universe. This is a trapdoor universe. Somebody's trying to pull one over on you. Somebody's trying to pull the wool over your eyes, you know. Uh, wake up and taste the coffee. Don't let them get away with it. Demand your rights. Watch out for yourself. This is this is all over Flannery O'Connor's short stories. It's so funny, you know. Every one of her characters is absolutely determined not to let anybody pull the wool over his eyes. And there are these benighted creatures that, that don't know squat, you know but they're absolutely sure that nobody's going to pull the wool over their eyes. Well, it's the same thing. This is the world according to the serpent. And so if you embrace the world according to the serpent, you will become like gods. Is there any truth to that? Well, there there is if you realize that, the, that he's referring to pr- plural gods. He's referring to pagan gods. And if you take Hesiod's word for how how gods came to be and uh, how they behave. So I'm going to quote to you from Hesiod uh, who describes uh, in his uh, Theogony uh, how the gods of Olympus got there. So this is a picture of the kind of gods we will become if we take the serpent's construction of the universe. Here's what Hesiod says about the origin of things. Broad-breasted Gaia bore Uranus, her equal, but without love's embraces. Then she mated with Uranus and bore the immortals. The youngest and most vicious of the children of Gaia and Uranus was Cronos, who hated his father. Now right now, all, <laughs> all this, by the way, Hesiod is, does not give us a very romantic picture of Gaia. Gaia is in, in the ascendance these days, but uh, Hesiod's version is quite sober. Um, so, Gaia and Uranus produced these immortal offspring, the, most, uh, the youngest and most vicious being Kronos, who hated his father. This is, this is the kind of gods you become if you accept the serpent's universe. Uranus forced Gaia to keep her children within her, and he delighted in his tyranny. Gaia plotted to overthrow Uranus. She inspired her children to join her in her plan to vanquish Uranus. Kronos castrated his tyrant father, Uranus, and took his place of prominence. But Cronos soon learned from Gaia and Uranus that he too was destined to be overthrown by his son. So he swallowed all his children by Rhea, his, his wife. But Rhea hid her youngest from Cronos and uh, wrapped a stone in a blanket and gave it to him when he was the time to swallow her youngest son. And of course her youngest son was Zeus. Zeus survived to overthrow his father but it was he overthrew him in a war that, uh, between Zeus and the gods and Kronos and the Titans, a war that went on and on and on like the Trojan War. This sounds ridiculous, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. They fought each other continually for ten full years in a heart-rending struggle. There was no let-up in the harsh conflict. Neither side held an advantage. Victory was balanced between them. Zeus, at one critical moment, Gives one of these Churchillian speeches, you know, to to his troops, which rallies them. I mean, it's like like the speech of of Henry V uh, in Shakespeare's Henry V. just one of these incredible speeches, you know. You just want to throw yourself onto the battlefield. Thus he spoke, and the gods, givers of good fortune, applauded what they heard. Now their hearts craved war even more than before. And on that day, both male and female gods began a horrible battle. That is to say, it was everybody. It was a total conflagration. Everybody's into it. Both sides at once showed their might. All around the boundless sea resounded with horror, total chaos. The earth roared loudly. The, The wide ocean groaned in a violent upheaval, and so on and so forth. Zeus no longer held himself back, but at once his fury strengthened him, and he unleashed his full force. And they were victorious. And then they, they walled up the gods they'd just overthrown in, in Tartarus. It, uh, Hesiod says, There under the misty darkness the titan gods are hidden, according to the plan of Zeus the cloud-gatherer. Zeus the cloud-gatherer is an interesting reference, I think, to, to the work of mythology covering it all up. And then the business of institutionalizing this order begins And uh, the gods are given their places and so on. uh, Everything is ordered and it becomes respectable. It becomes a respectable, institutionalized, uh, uh, sacred system. Well, the point of all that is that's the kind of gods we become if we accept the serpent's view of reality. If, in fact, we have to be suspicious, even of those that have that are the closest and kindest, the most generous, who have our interest at heart. If we have to be suspicious of everybody in order to get our rights, that's the kind of world we'll end up with. Okay, well, let's go back to the biblical story here for a second. After they eat of the fruit of the tree, Yahweh goes walking in the cool of the day in the garden. By the way, part of, one of the images you get from this story is, uh, is the image of, of prayer, really, in a way. The, Yahweh takes a stroll in the cool of the day in the garden with Adam and Eve every day. You get, this is a little rendezvous they have, this moment uh, when they're together. So he goes for his afternoon stroll in the garden, and lo and behold, they're not to be found. And Yahweh calls out, Where are you? And Adam answered, I heard the sound of you in the garden, he replied. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. These are little hints of what it means to be a fallen creature. I was afraid I was naked, so I hid. And Yahweh said, Who told you you were naked? (laughs) This reminds me, by the way, Robin Williams did a thing on... I don't know if you know this thing. Robin Williams did a thing on uh, uh, Pecos Bill. You know the little goofy story of Pecos Bill. It's the funniest thing I've ever heard, I've ever seen. There's a video. It's all done with drawings, but it's the voice of Robin Williams. And it has nothing, zero, to do with this story. I just want to say to you, it's very funny. The reason I thought of it is because (laughs) Pecos Bill falls off the wagon and is raised by these coyotes. So he howls at the moon at night and he thinks he's a coyote. And this cowboy comes along who Robin Williams also impersonates who sounds like John Wayne who says, What are you? You're not a coyote. You're naked. (laughs) (laughs) uh, He said... uh, the, the, The John Wayne figure says... Something like, Go on now. (laughs) You're not a coyote. You're naked. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) I don't know why I thought of (laughs) it. Anyway, so, so God said, Who told you you're naked? And Adam says, It was the woman who made me do it. And Eve said, It was the serpent who showed me the fruit. So another symptom, what's the symptom? Scapegoating. That is simply scapegoating. It's not scapegoating in in the ripened into the full-blown thing of burning a witch or lynching somebody, but it's the scapegoating reflex right there. Put it off, put it off, put it off. So that's the fall. And so then they are expelled and... I think there's one thing I'd like to pick up on in the little speech that Yahweh gives them when he turns them out of the garden. He says to Eve, you know the thing, I will multiply your pains in childbearing, you shall give birth to your children in pain. And then then he says, your yearning shall be for your husband, yet he will lord it over you. This is really pretty powerful. The symmetry is broken. And now we have domination. But domination is a result of the fall. And you have, here you have a biblical text written by somebody who is steeped in, pat- in the patriarchy and who is no doubt, in a sense, justifying patriarchy, but at the same time justifying it as something that has to do with the fall. So you get a, typ- a typically biblical uh, struggle within the text a struggle which says some kind of domination is inevitable, we have to have it. we're fallen creatures. If you eliminate the fact we're talking gender because gender is such a hot topic in our day, if you eliminate that and you just say what's what comes into the picture here is domination, oppression, you see arbitrary authority, etc and so this Biblical author who is living in a patriarchal society is saying we have to have it, but he's also saying that it's not what God wanted. It's a product of the fall. It didn't exist before the fall. There was symmetry before the fall. And I think that is very profound. It also shows that the rebellion of the fall leads to slavery. The rebellion is carried out, of course in the spirit of self-assertion, in the spirit of uh, not wanting, a typical modern spirit of question authority, not wanting to submit and so on and so forth, the result is slavery. So the paradox, and there is uh, underlying this, the paradox of freedom and obedience. So I wanted to pursue that a little bit, this question of, Asserting oneself, defying authority on principle, and having it lead to slavery. And at the risk of going too far afield to do that, I want to quote to you from a, another one of these book reviews that I read. I read too many book reviews. I, but, uh, having not as much time as I wish to uh, read the books, I do a lot of reading of book reviews, and I read one that I think came it came to mind when I read this line about uh, the husband now lording it over her, and it has to do with the breakdown It has to do with rejecting all authority in the in the the, the determined effort to achieve freedom. And ending up enslaved in the most miserable way. And it's a it's from a book review by Robert Siegel, who's a visiting professor of Jewish studies at Tulane, who reviewed the book by James Miller, an, a historian, a biography of Michel Foucault entitled "The Passion of Michel Foucault." You probably don't know about Michel Foucault. I know very little myself just about as much as I want to know but 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 you should also know that Michel Foucault is a major fact in intellectual life today and <coughs> perhaps will be less so as biographies like this become more available but in any case he's he's a major influence he's a sort of post-freudian i don't know it's hard to know how to characterize uh, his his work but i want to read it to you as an example of what happens in the Genesis story, and as an example of what's referred to, there's one, pa- one line in the epistle of James which sums it all up. It goes like this. Once passion has conceived, and the word here for passion is epithumia, and, and, and the word epithumia, the root of the word epithumia, by the way, is the word thumos, which means sacrifice. So there is an etymological link between desire and sacrifice in, the, in, in Greek, and that in itself is very interesting. But the word here is epithumia, which means which means this translated here passion, but it means very powerful emotion. So James says once epithumia. I'll just use the Greek because his the translation passion is okay. We could say desire, but Since we're confused by those words and it's Freud's had his influence on us, I'm just going to use epithumia. Once epithumia has conceived, and the serpent in the garden conceives epithumia, once epithumia has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Okay, so here's what Robert Siegel says about, in his review of uh, Miller's biography of Michel Foucault, quote, at the time of his death, at the age of 57 in 1984, Michel Foucault was the West's most celebrated intellectual. There are a lot of people vying for most celebrated intellectual in the West, (laughs) and that's pretty impressive. Well, it turns out that the most celebrated intellectual in the West was also a sadomasochist. Now, this... Raises some very interesting questions about the West and about the intellectual uh, climate in which it now finds itself. So, to his credit, S- uh, Siegel says, Miller takes Foucault's practice of sadomasochism seriously. An earlier biography dealt with this, a- as uh, Siegel says, very gingerly, <laughs> as though it were unrelated to his intellectual uh, agenda. Uh, but Miller t- takes it seriously and, as a matter of fact, considers it the key not only to Foucault's life but to his work. Indeed, So, what I'm reading, I'm reading this perverse thing to you because it has to do with the stated intention of establishing our freedom and the end result of enslaving ourselves. Indeed, quoting Siegel again. Indeed, Miller regards his subject's intellectual work, an original blend of philosophy, history, and social criticism, as part of a lifelong effort at forging a new self. So we're now back to the problem we dealt with in the last series. According to Miller, Foucault's life and work are dual attempts to demonstrate that human beings can free themselves from the constraining values and institutions of their society. Miller portrays Foucault's work as an attempt to liberate not just humanity, but most of all Foucault himself. Foucault sought freedom through experience. He aimed to prove the arbitrariness of the divisions we make between consciousness and unconsciousness, sanity and madness, life and death, pleasure and pain. Foucault tested these assumed polarities through drugs, politics and sex. He's a very modern Westerner in that regard. And then, finally, Siegel says, Sadomasochism, Foucault believed, provided the clearest, quote, proof that the pitting of pain against pleasure was arbitrary. It also tested the legitimacy of the distinction between sex and aggression. Now, you see, this breakdown, as I've said before, The breakdown between male and female, between sex and aggression, when those two things begin to break down, then the sacrificial crisis is reaching its climax. Some months ago, remember, we did a quick review of the Baki by Euripides. And you'll remember in that story, you get the sacrificial crisis. And the sacrificial crisis, the the marker for seeing the, the, the approaching denouement, the sacrificial crisis, is the breakdown of the distinction between male and female and between sex and aggression, sex and violence. And so if that's true, and if there is some symbolic significance to the fact that the most celebrated intellectual in the West was also a sadomasochist, then we're in deeper trouble than we thought. Remember, I I invoked James, the letter James, which says, once epithumia has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. By the way, I don't, I'm not thinking here of sin in the I invoke this thing from the Epistle of James not because I'm trying to connect the the term sin to certain behaviors, certain behaviors which one would regard as outside the pale, but to to a certain uh, state of mind, which is, you know, Paul talks about living in sin. He's not talking about certain activities. Those activities are incidental to this, living in this kind of slavery called sin. So, again, James says, once epithumia has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Siegel writes this about Miller's biography of Foucault. Quote, Miller strives to be faithful to his subjects' dictates because Foucault declared the death of a person the key to the person's life, Miller starts and ends with Foucault's death. Did Foucault really die of AIDS? Yes. Did he know he had contracted AIDS? Probably. Did he knowingly infect others? Perhaps. Did he engage in conspicuously unsafe sex as a form of suicide? Maybe. Now, this is why would Gil be doing this? This is ridiculous. This is the most celebrated intellectual in the West. What does it say to us? And I say I, I bring it before us not to be you know, not to engage in some kind of tawdry thing here, but to but to show something pitiable really, but it's at the same time something to be wary of. A determination to be free from all of that, a suspicion that every constraint is, l- is laid there by some conniving, imperialistic, oppressive force, and I must throw it off. And the result is slavery. You, and you have that whole thing is already pictured in the Genesis story. And it's pictured in the story, it comes into play precisely where Yahweh says to, to Eve, Now he will lord it over you. The serpent told you this was going to be freedom. You thought this was going to be freedom and you end up in an oppressive situation. Okay, one last picture of Adam and Eve before we go on. And that is when they're expelled from the garden, there's this very touching, I find it very touching little moment in the story when God clothes them in animal skins, And I think it is both... It, it, it's a picture of an infinitely loving God and at the same time it's a kind of sobering picture because a fig leaf doesn't last very long. <laughs> and if it could be done with a fig leaf, there's this, there's this idea that, well, it's just a little temporary thing. But when God takes the time to clothe them in animal skins, you know it's for the long haul. This expulsion is for the long haul. The journey of redemption is going to be a long journey. It's going to be a long time coming. You can't just change your mind and get back in. It's a long process. From the garden to the glorified city at the end of the Bible is a long journey and this the act of the of the kind creator god giving them clothes for the journey i think is tremendous it's sobering as well and there's even and i think probably this has been done by biblical people involved in typology there's even a, a premonition in a way of the stripping of jesus the garments of jesus at the crucifixion